This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking to Major General Deborah Katulich. General Katulich is currently the director for the Army Recruiting and Retention Task Force. The Army Recruiting and Retention Task Force was established by the Secretary of the Army to integrate and synchronize efforts across the Army enterprise to address all issues currently affecting recruiting and retention efforts. General Katulich received her commission in 1990 from the United States Military Academy at West Point, graduating with a bachelor's degree in political science. She also holds a master's and degree in national resource strategy from the National Defense University. General Katulich is married and has two daughters. Uh, first off, welcome to Leaders and Legends. Thanks, Aileen. It's great to be here. Can you uh, describe your leadership style? <laughs> so it's an interesting question, and I, I, I want to start with um, a few points. Uh, at, at some point in my career, I learned what a servant leader is and realized that that was me. So if you're looking for a specific style description, I think servant leader is is the best one that I can share with you. Um, I've internalized the importance of people in building high-performing teams and balancing the the health of those high-performing teams with the importance of the mission. And the mission has to happen, but you can't crush your people. I also believe that as a leader, you know, you have to set the climate and environment so soldiers want to come to work every day. And and that means you've got to invest in them and show that you care for them in order to enable each of them to give their best. Um, but beyond that, as a commander in my, in my myriad command positions, I, I actually had a card, a three-by-five card that became, we call it mandatory wear. So this card would get printed out, and each soldier had to carry the card, and it had five CG's principles, commanding general's principles. And, and so the, they're pretty basic, but I wanted people to think about them uh, so that they understood, you know, my expectations. And the first principle is the parent principle, which is basically what we say in the Army. It's, it's the table stakes of being tactically and technically proficient, physically fit, and mentally able. The second one is the Peterson Principle. And this is where, you know, it's um, everything that you do, you you have to enjoy it and and visualize the positive. This gets into setting the climate. The third one is the Stafford Principle, which requires one to be value added in each situation. Don't, especially as a leader, insert yourself just to insert yourself, right? Only insert yourself if you're going to add some value looking for a solution that's needed, challenging assumptions, constraints, taking reasonable risk. The fourth is called the Stotts Principle, and that's named after one of my mentors, Major General Retired Rich Stotts. And it requires rewarding people for jobs well done, making it pleasurable for others to be around you. And then then the last principle, I felt like if I was absconding a principle from someone else that I should create my own, so I call it the Katulich Principle. 
And that, I'm sure, it belongs to somebody else, but it, it, the way that I describe it is getting the best out of what each player on your team has to give. I believe in managing talent within a team because every soldier and officer is different, and in, in that diversity is a lot of strength and resilience. So that's, that's the way I look at my leadership style. Have you found uh, that you needed to approach situations different depending upon the audience? And, and I guess from the perspective of, I mean, you're, you're a major general in the military, which is predominantly men. Uh, have you had to approach um, you know, leadership roles differently as a woman? So uh, when I began my career, 33 years ago. Um, I, I admit now uh, that I was sensitive to the fact that I was a woman, right? And so I, I felt like I needed to be every bit as good, if not better, than most uh, most of the folks around me, right, at, at most of the things that we were doing. So things like running and physical training, field training, again, back to tactical and technical proficiencies, and, and generally creating a persona that was not going to be viewed as weak or inferior in any way. I, I can look backwards and recognize and objectively say that today. I, what I can't tell you is whether or not any of my male peers approached things similarly in that way. But I, I have had this discussion with other female leaders, and I think, I think it's not uncommon. Um, does that make sense? I think uh, so. So there was a sensitivity to the fact that I was a woman, trying to not be perceived uh, as as less than capable in any way. No, especially where there's uh, you know one of your principles is being uh, fit uh, for the job. So that that completely makes sense. And um, I guess. Uh, I'm going to talk to you later in the show in regards to your um, experience at West Point, but you were one of the very first classes of women at West Point. And I know because half my family went to West Point that plebe summer is very physical. Um, <laughs> I would, did, is that kind of like, was the crowning point that kind of started that? Um, I, 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 do, I do think that, uh, you know, my approach was informed by that. And, and actually, I, I share that with men and women. When, you know, I was very physically fit uh, before I went to West Point. In high school, you know, played soccer and uh, basketball and softball and had already had a uh, black belt in karate by the time I was 17. So what I noticed, to your point, during the cadet basic training that first summer um, was that I did not struggle on the runs. I did not struggle when we were doing PT and we were doing PT almost every day. Um, but I had a roommate who did, right? And, and I felt badly for her because it really impacted her, you know, her, everything about how she was approaching her summer training. She was very smart, you know, she made it through cadet basic training and, and we actually roomed together one more time um, and she was very smart, did very well in her academics, but she continued to struggle physically. And so what I try to coach young men and women is to enjoy fitness, right? Fitness is a way of life and take that struggle off the table because there's going to be so many other challenges that you're going to have to face. And so I, I do think, um, again, going forward, I took a tremendous amount of pride 
in running faster than some of my soldiers sometimes because, um, you know, for whatever reason, that, that, that granted some amount of credibility. And, and then from there, it was all the other elements of understanding your craft, being proficient, right, that you, you continue to build credibility. I love that saying, take that challenge off the table. General Katulich, you have worked for some amazing leaders. Any leaders that come to mind in your past that provided you an important lesson or event? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't be where I am today, right? So there's there's a couple of uh, leaders. And when I look back, I realized somewhere maybe 10 years ago or so that uh, my first battalion commander that I worked for as a 22-year-old second lieutenant retired ultimately as a three-star general. And my second battalion commander, and his name, by the way, was uh, Lieutenant General Retired Bill Mortensen. Um, my second battalion commander, Lieutenant uh, uh, Colonel at the time, Bob Radden, he ultimately retired as a two-star. And then my first brigade commander um, retired as a two-star. Um, his name was Major General Larry Lust. And then my second brigade commander uh, retired as a three-star, Lieutenant General Mitch Stevenson. And the point is that each of those gentlemen were exceptional. And I didn't exactly understand that or realize that at the time when I was a lieutenant or a captain working for them. It, you know, it wasn't until later that I realized the quality of leader that I had had the opportunity um, to work for. And each of them taught me the importance of treating everyone fairly and the importance of you know, empathy and, and the criticality of setting the example and leading from the front and those sorts of lessons that I learned from each of them, I would say was consciously or unconsciously, I have spent my career trying to emulate them. Um, I felt like, and, and you, you know, you brought up West Point and, you know, being in that, I was in the 10th class of, of women to graduate. Um, with these gentlemen, I felt like I had a level playing field to play on. Um, and, you know, they created a meritocracy in the sense that they were always looking for the best athletes to build their teams. And, the, and they understood, and this is important that I learned from them, that their success was tied to the success of the team. And so following those first two assignments, it, it's absolutely true to say that I finally did come across some not so high quality leaders. But by then, you know, we have a saying in the army, by then I knew what right looked like. And uh, now as a more senior and seasoned leader, um, while serving as the chief of staff at U.S. Transportation Command back in 2019 to 2021, I worked for a three-star deputy commander who said two things that I had never heard before and I will never forget. And so, again, it's the difference between learning things as a, as a you know, 22 to 26, 27-year-old to learning something, you know, as a much more senior general officer. Um, he said... Uh, he said, the first thing that you have to understand is that you can have either a staff-led leader or a leader-led staff, but you can't have both. Do you, do you understand what, what that means, Aileen, or should I explain I, that a little I, please, bit? Please, uh, please explain. That, you know, the, the, there are leaders who might walk into the office in the morning and look at the staff that is already there and buzzing around and say, okay, what do we need to do today? Right. And those those staff uh, officers are going to come in the door and they're going to lay it down for you and they're going to tell you what you're doing. And that is a leader. Uh, that is a staff led leader. Right. Alternatively, 
you can have uh, you can you can have a leader-led staff, and the difference is the leader walks in in the morning, gathers up the staff, and says, "Okay, here's what we're going to do today." And and I thought that was really important because I've seen it, right? I've seen both, and you know, every now and again, you got to kind of refresh yourself uh, on the fact that you're the leader. And I don't want to be, you know, I never wanted to be the staff-led leader. So that was really, again, something I'd never heard before. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that he said was that um, people will go where they find value. And so in other words, if you're a senior leader in a large organization and you can't give strong guidance or direction and the members in the organization are looking for that direction or that prioritization or that guidance, they'll find someone else to give it to them, right? And, and that's when you become irrelevant. And so those two lessons at that stage in my own, you know, career were, were absolute aha moments. And I wanted to, you know, I want to share those with anybody who might be listening. That's great new, um, advice. So you you sound like you're a, a, a student of leadership. Is there uh, a leadership book that you really has inspired you and, and you follow? Um, yeah, so I would, <laughs> I laugh because I actually um, didn't do a lot of reading uh, ever in my life, but as a, as a more senior person, I have not, not more senior, but as I got a little older and a little more mature, I actually discovered a, a joy and a love for reading. So I appreciate that question. There, there's really, there's one leadership book that I found to be very impactful, and it was it was by the um, Arbinger Institute, and it's called Leadership and Self Deception. And that particular book was probably the first non-military leadership book I ever read, right? You know, you, you go out through the airports and, you know, bookstores and you see all these leadership books by, by business folks. And I hadn't really paid any attention to those uh, until that one book, again, Leadership and Self-Deception. And what it basically talks about are leaders who essentially ambush themselves with an inability to get out of their own way, right? Um, and so I would recommend that to anyone. There, there's another one that I read after that because I was so uh, impressed, and it had to do with emotional intelligence. And of course, emotional intelligence is something that you know you, you, you sort of learn along the way. But but it was really something quite simple. Uh, it was a Harvard Business Review book that had a compilation of ten articles related to emotion, emotional intelligence. And so the title was quite simply on emotional intelligence. And, and that's a skill, that's something that I think people can develop, um, and, but, it's, but it's so critical, right? Being able to understand how you communicate to others, how they perceive your communication, and vice versa, right? And, and I think, I, again, through my career, I've seen folks who are terrible at it or don't even pay attention to it or don't value it, and then I've seen other leaders incredibly effective who... Uh, you know, give that a, a fair amount of priority. And then, and then the last one that I really enjoyed is um, it, it's actually by a, a retired three-star general logistician because that's you know that was that's my career in the military, sustainment logistics, and it was called Soldier Supporting Soldiers. Um, it, it, this was when, and he was Vietnam era uh, commander of the first logistics command in Vietnam, and ultimately retired as the deputy chief of staff 
for logistics in in the Army headquarters. This was a book written with selfless intentions of sharing information, and um, I just I found it to be compelling and inspiring. I'm speaking with Major General Deborah Kutulich. After the break, we'll discuss developing your own authentic leadership style. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Major General Deborah Kutulich. In the last segment, we talked about your leadership style and a little bit about some of the obstacles and the people who formed your leadership style. Was there a point where you found your authentic leadership style, where you found it comfortable to be who you are? Yeah. Um, and believe it or not, it was pretty early on in my career, although I would I would admit I probably didn't recognize that at the time. So what I mean is that when I was a second lieutenant platoon leader in Germany, I had 70 soldiers in my first platoon. So So picture a 22-year-old right out of college walking in the door and you have 72 men and women that you're in charge of who, you know, range from, I would say, 18 to 45. And, you know, it was, it was a, uh, it was really seminal. But I had Sergeant First Class John Antonucci. He was my very first platoon sergeant. And by that point, he had likely between 13 and 15 years of, of experience in the Army he was uh, incredibly accomplished and, um, in, in retrospect, an absolute blessing to have him as my first platoon sergeant. And he helped me understand that to be a good leader, I needed to be a caring leader. And when I look back now, I, I clearly understand that the leadership style I have is the leadership style he helped me develop and embrace. And it's, again, going back to being a servant leader, although in I would say 1991, 92, I'm not sure that phrase or that characterization existed. Um, and I, I really believe that after that, I genuinely enjoyed leading soldiers. And for the most part, and again, I say this without any hubris, I feel like soldiers responded to me. And so that's the way I continued in, in the, my career. Um, I have carried that, by the way, into my civilian career, the, the approach that I learned in the early 90s as a second lieutenant, thanks to John Antonucci, um, has, has evolved. And again, I've been able to carry that into my civilian career. And I, I have a feeling that it works when young consultants want to come join my team and my account um, you know, at my civilian employer that I'm on a leave of absence from, which is, which is IBM uh, Consulting Services. So I, I can honestly say, you know, earlier in the first segment, I talked about, you know, the, the leaders above me that helped shape me in my leadership style. But I certainly owe really foundationally to Sergeant First Class John Antonucci. You had um, several unconventional positions in the past few years that had an incredible broad impact. The first was during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic when you were assigned um, to uh, Operation Warp Speed. Um, do you, you know, how do you uh, approach leadership in the Army? How do you impact the ability to co you know, collaborate with different types of organizations, especially when you're talking about retention and recruiting against the organization? 
Yeah. So I, um, what, what I, what I think uh, we understand in the Army are the some of the very important root causes of our challenges with with recruiting, and one of them is uh, a knowledge gap and right behind it, a relatability gap with the American people and with young men and women. Um, and we have to do a better job of reintroducing ourselves, which we did a little of earlier this year with the you know um, reinvention and launching of Be All You Can Be. Um, in the Army, what I realized when I was working at warp speed and we were we were supporting health and human services and the CDC and the whole White House uh, COVID task force effort is that in the army we build leaders uh, and I mean that sincerely with a great deal of pride you know when you bring a lieutenant in and I've talked about that a little bit you you have a certain amount of people that are assigned to you that you're responsible for and you have a, a certain responsibilities and as you continue through your career, you move up and, you know, you become, you get a little more rank, you get a few more people, and you get more responsibility. And then you continue to move up through battalion command and brigade command. And then ultimately, you know, when I was a one-star general commanding an expeditionary sustainment command, and I had 10,000 soldiers uh, and a whole lot of responsibility and a whole lot of rank at that point. And that's what I mean when I say we build leaders. So by the time you know, I reported in uh, to Warp Speed, which was, it wasn't just a whole of government pandemic response effort. It, it was a whole of America, right? We were working with uh, large corporations, companies like FedEx and UPS and, uh, you know, the pharmaceutical companies. And, and we were working, I was in charge of the supply production and distribution for the vaccine and the therapeutics. And, uh, I was working with, you know, CEOs and senior vice presidents of these companies, all, you know, working towards a, a, a goal of distributing life-saving vaccine and therapeutics. But what I realized is my, you know, at that point, 31 years of experience in the Army, we have processes that we use. So we grow leaders, right, step by step, um, and and then we use processes that are just foundational. I could throw out acronyms and any Army soldier would know or any Army officer would understand exactly what I was saying. But, but things like doing daily operation synchronization, um, things like military decision-making process, these are tools that we use that allow us the ability to uh, look at hard problems, ambiguous environments, imperfect information, and look for solutions that also account for the risk of the imperfect information. And so that, that I think, is what helped us be successful for the nation. And that's what we're not effectively communicating, you know, to the American people of, of why our military is so good, is so strong, and why it's important you know, to continue to get in those next generations. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes perfect sense. Um, how can we do that? I mean, uh, coming from almost an entire military background family, uh, I do see the difference between the development of leaders um, in the military and the training that they get 
um, and having come from myself, you know, led very large organizations in, in private sector, you, you just don't get that chance. You know, you, you, you learn by, but by, you know, experience, right. Um, or by working for, you get lucky that you work for somebody great. And sometimes you get unlucky and you learn even more from somebody who's not so great, but right. how can we infuse that leadership? How can we help that next generation? Because, you know, the military has a different relationship now with the private sector. And, and I believe at least that could be very fruitful. So what I can tell you in, in this role, um, I've had, you know, the great opportunity to talk to any number of uh, private sector leaders. Um, we have, uh, you know, veterans, there are uh, official state, local, federal, Everyone wants to help. Everyone sees the problem and everyone wants to help. And so, you know, again, to your point, what we we aren't, the Army hasn't effectively uh, or broadly enough been telling our story to the American people. We need to create uh, a, an opportunity to take our, some of our most junior soldiers, some of our newest soldiers who are thriving and give them a platform to communicate with their networks about that, to to basically approach that you know 17 to 24, 17 to 28 year old population, uh, and and inform them of of the opportunities and the possibilities that that they too can find with service in the army or in the military in general. But additionally, because the messaging is different, right? For more senior demographics, this is where you know, it's a whole of nation effort to communicate the value of service, not just service in the military, but service in general. Because what we know, right, through uh, studies and surveys is that, that this sense of service um, has gone down over, over the years. And, and I think that it would be very helpful for community leaders, federal leaders, you know, commercial industry, affinity groups to to talk to young men and women today about the value of service to the nation. And, you know, I don't want to be corny and go back to, you know, John F. Kennedy's statement about, you know, ask not what you, what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. You know, I think today we're very far off from that. And, uh, and I think there's a happy medium in there. But we just, we need to be able to create the mechanisms to continue to inform America, particularly 17 to 24, 28 year olds, who we are, what we're about, and the opportunity and the possibilities that they can find for themselves by coming into the Army, which has more career fields than any single employer uh, anywhere. You can do almost anything you want to do in the Army. We will help you. And along the way, to your very good point, we will also instill in you a sense of uh, confidence, the ability to lead, the ability to uh, address hard problems with with ambiguity and complex situations and, and basically be challenged and win. I'm speaking with Major General Deborah Kotulich. Next, we'll talk about being a leader that is trying to lead through change. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders in Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Major General Deborah Kutulich. 
Um, we talked uh, about um, your dedication and, uh, and work in the military. You talked about the importance of service to the nation. Let's talk about why, what made you dedicate so much of your career to public service? You know, I, I have thought about this again. I can't, I, I sound like a broken record, 33 years of service in the army, but it hasn't just been in the army. I've got extensive um, assignments in what we call our joint environment where we're working alongside our Navy, Air Force, uh, Coast Guardsmen, um, Marine, you know, brothers and sisters. And so that joint perspective, I've, I've had a lot of experience with as well. I, but fundamentally, what I learned, and it, and it goes back to being a servant leader, it goes back to uh, doing good. And it's a very simple way to say it, but as a junior officer, leading soldiers was incredibly rewarding. And I would... I would say that my own background was modest, uh, to say the least, which is a reason why I chose to go to the military academy. I knew it was going to be free. I didn't have a family of military um, veterans to, to talk to or be encouraged or inspired by. It was really a means to an end. And when I came into the Army as a lieutenant, and again, my first platoon was 72 soldiers, I really got to know those men and women, and many of them were not that different than I was in terms of where they were coming from. And what I realized is I would have this ability to not only train them and form a high-performing unit for the purpose of our military mission, but at an individual level, and again, with the help of my non-commissioned officers, we could help those young men and women you know, get an education get skills and certifications, learn about themselves, uh, build some financial wealth that they had never seen in their, in their homes. And, and so I think that was the start of the reward that, you know, I got pretty, pretty intoxicated with. Um, and then the mission. So I, I enjoy supply chain. I enjoy logistics. And the things that, that I got to do through my career at scope and scale and speed, I don't know that I would have ever had those experiences in the civilian sector. And so, you know, the better you get at something, the more you want to do it. And so that sort of paralleled with, you know, this love of leadership. And then I, I you know, was deployed about three different times through my career going overseas. Uh, the first time I would qualify as, as combat in 2004 in Iraq. And that was not the most fun I had, but, but there was reward to what we were doing and, and what we were trying to do um, at my level with, you know, providing uh, sustainment to the forces. We were, we were doing things with local villages and local communities. And uh, after that, you know, two more tours, which uh, I think I was a little further back in our, in our zone, uh, it was really about supporting the men and women in uniform. And all of that, you know, I, I just enjoyed. And before I, you know, before I knew it, I turned around, I had 20 years of service. And then the next thing I knew, I had 30. 
and and you know you just kind of lose track of time if that makes sense when you enjoy what you're doing and when you're passionate about it you want to do more of it you talk a lot about you know the the folks that you help develop and and the soldiers that you lead and the importance of they are to actually achieving the mission leaders you know i i'm, I'm going to quote a, a legendary consultant um peter drucker you know he one of his famous savings is culture eats strategy for breakfast now i don't think he meant strategy was unimportant but rather then a powerful, empowering culture is certainly a much surer route to organizational you know, success. Do you agree with that? And, and what does that mean to you? I, I, I do agree. And, uh, and I, I agree with the way that he said it, and I agree with the way that you said it, right? Um, what you're talking about fundamentally are, are well-led teams and teams that are on the same page. You're talking about... Uh, men and women working side by side, whether that's in a military organization in the Army or in a civilian uh, sector. And again, men and women who enjoy what they do, want to be in that job, uh, and feel cared for and well-led. They perform better. They deliver better results, right? And, and that becomes the culture of the organization. Right. It's it should be built on trust. It should be built on um, mutual reliance. Uh, it, it should be built on confidence in leaders, you know, of the organization. When that culture is right, you get the results you want. And when it's wrong, uh, you know, unfortunately, sometimes you see the you see the consequences of that. So I I agree with the way he said it. I agree with the way you said it. There's so many articles coming out today, and you've mentioned empathetic leadership. I think one of your early mentors actually um, stressed the importance of being having empathy when you lead. Um, people are tired right now. We have a great deal of uh, resignations across the country. Um, I'm sure it's affecting some of our military uh, forces, and, and, and your focus is retention. How do you lead with empathy and how are you applying that to the role that you're in today? So, so again, empathy, emotional intelligence, I think those are connected, but it goes back to inspiration. One of the things I had the great opportunity on Friday of doing the commence, um, it was a commissioning ceremony for Fordham University and then in the afternoon, Seton Hall University uh, ROTC programs. And what I communicated to that group of brand new second lieutenants at each, at each university is that their number one job is going to be to inspire the soldiers that they lead. And when we talk about people being tired and we, and we talk about the resignation, you know, what I, what I tend to think is they're not inspired. What I tend to think is that they um, are not enjoying what they do or enjoying where they work, right? And so in, in the very beginning, I shared with you my principles, those five commanding general principles. It is the leader's responsibility to set the conditions, the environment, to inspire, to make the workplace a place that people want to come in the door every day. And, and that means you've got to be able to resource them, you've got to appreciate them, 
you've got to recognize them and make them feel valued, right? And so that's the way that I approach because because I've been leading through COVID like everyone else, right? Um, and I, I won't go down, you know, too deeply down the path. When I was a chief of staff at U.S. Transportation Command, you know, that's one of 11 combatant commands in the United States Department of Defense. We had a no-fail mission through COVID when the entire world was shut down to fly to Italy and pick up test strips, fly to, believe it or not, China and pick up syringes, transport ventilators in in the country from, let's say, a stockpile in Maryland to New York City where they were getting ravished by, by, the, by COVID. We had to keep our 24-7 operation going at Transcom headquarters, and it, it's about 2,500 men and women in that headquarters. It took a great deal of empathy, energy, emotional intelligence, but inspiration to to ensure that when when those that needed to be there to get the job done, the no-fail mission completed, that they knew they were coming somewhere where they were going to be taken care of. My role was to, to set conditions for as safe a work environment as possible. And there was a lot to that, right? And then after that, again, going, as you mentioned, to Operation Warp Speed. And um, so I, I get people are tired, uh, and I watched people get tired. Uh, but that's why you've got to be a caring, attentive leader. You have to understand when to give your folks breaks, and you have to understand how to keep them feeling appreciated and keep them inspired. You're listening to Leaders in Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking to Major General Deborah Katulich. Coming up, we'll find out what Major Katulich's advice is to the next generation. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Major General Deborah Katulich. You know, you had a very long, distinguished career in the military. Tell us, um, you know, you you've had uh, you know, a tough, tough positions. You're, you're a mom, you took a break to help your mom. Uh, tell us how you balance all of that. Uh, tell us, you know, how you approach, you know, being that energetic, inspirational leader, but at the same time, you, you have demands coming from you from all sides. Yeah. Um, you know, Aileen, thanks for asking that. And uh, so two different periods over time, uh, you actually are touching on, believe it or not. So, um, you know, years ago, uh, in my late 20s, my mom had been diagnosed with uh, leukemia, and she was living by herself in New Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey, and I, I was in the Army. I was having a fantastic time. I was uh, traveling from uh, you know, really high-speed units in Germany over to Korea, and I realized that my mother uh, was, you know, she was getting by. And so I did make a, the, probably the toughest decision um, when I look back that I've ever had to make was when I chose to leave active duty uh, and I moved my mom in with me. I got a civilian job, started a civilian job. Um, and then really just by luck, I actually went into the Army Reserves, which is a funny story, and, and maybe we'll tell you that. But um 
at the point where I found a job, I didn't understand the the cost of home ownership. I'll be honest with you. And I had moved my mom in, um, had to you know pay some of her Cobra bills, which was expensive. And so being in the Army Reserves initially allowed me to continue doing you know what I loved, which was which was being in the Army, being a logistician, and and working with and leading soldiers. But it also fortuitously brought in a little extra money, which was needed at the time. And I was single at that point. So, um, you know, my mother was fine when I wasn't around on weekends or, you know, doing things. Um, and, and But the balance of a civilian career, a new civilian career, and, you know, the, the Army Reserves, at that point it was, I think it was very doable. Um, and I think that's probably commensurate with the level of responsibility you know, again, in my twenty, my late twenties, as as things you know moved on, um, I ended up. I I did you know uh, get into a committed relationship when I was thirty two, and and there were two kids that were already in that equation, uh, a ten year old and a four year old, and so now I I added a family to all of that, and you know as life happens. You know, you continue to work hard, you do well, you, you get promoted into new positions. I've already talked to you about on the military side, you know, you get that next level of leadership with commensurate with your grade, the associated responsibilities, et cetera, et cetera. And, and things got crazy. And um, I actually would not say that I did a great job of achieving any level of what people like to call work-life balance. I, I don't. I was blessed to have a supportive partner at the time, you know, who's now my wife, my legal wife, um, and and really it was a it was a separation of efforts in the house, and you know just um, energy to keep going and, and have two successful careers. Now it's a different horizon. You know, I'm older. My mother is older. She is fortunately still in the picture, right? So this is when I look back at that very difficult decision. I have no regrets. It's worked out, and she is still here today. But now I'm on that in that generation where, you know, I am once again, you know, helping to care for my mother who's getting on in age and has some some other conditions, and and so and now I'm, you know. Uh, with the civilian career and the success I've achieved in the Army, again, more responsibility, commensurate with the rank, et cetera, et cetera. All I can say is my kids are off the payroll. They're doing great. I'm proud of them. I'm, I'm happy that they're happy. Um, I, you know, having a supporting, loving family is so very important. And uh, I think that's what helps, you know, keep you on track when things get crazy, trying to balance so much. And where I would tell you, I, I talked about this on Friday, actually, at those two commissioning ceremonies I mentioned at, at Fordham and Seton Hall, the Army has changed in 33 years, and I, am, I have been glad to be a part of that change. It, it, today, it is, as I say, not your daddy's or granddaddy's Army. Um, the level of support and emphasis we put on families is, is game-changing. Right, and this is actually something that we need to do uh, more communication of, you know, to your point to get after the recruiting challenges. But you know, there's a saying that the strength of our nation is our army, the strength of the army uh, is our soldiers, and the strength of the soldiers are the families. And we have put a lot into 
the quality of life for those families. As most recently, you know, renaming the Maneuver Center of Excellence at a storied installation down in Georgia to Fort Hal and Julia Moore. So Lieutenant General Hal Moore, uh, you know, there's a movie many years ago, Mel Gibson was in, it's Vietnam, We Were Soldiers was the name of the movie. He was the officer that Mel Gibson was playing and his wife as a as a spouse living, you know, uh, in Georgia at the time and, and seeing uh, taxis driving up with a telegram, you know, being handed to uh, a, a wife who was alone because her husband was forward deployed in Vietnam and, and the telegram informing her that he had just been killed, you know, she she changed that. She reached out to the taxi company and made a deal that whenever one of those telegrams was going to come, they would swing by her house first and pick her up and she would go with the taxi driver to be there to to console, you know, that spouse. And so that, again, we've named a base after them because of his leadership and her leadership and what they've done for families. And so I'm proud of the Army for that. So I think I might have gotten a little off topic to your question, but um, it's not easy is the answer, but it can be done. I loved your answer. You know, your career and success have really been inspirational. Uh, you, you shared some incredible wisdom with us today. Any final pearls of wisdom you would have for that next generation, maybe that 22-year-old that uh, is first going out, um, whether it be in from a military standpoint or, or just, you know, um, you know, your kids? Yeah, I... I the opportunities are endless, right? Young men and women today have more opportunity than my generation did, I would say, uh, when, when I was 18 or when I was 20, 21. And, and those young men and women need to know that, and they need to take advantage of that, and they, and they need to understand that they can make a difference. Um, you know, if I go into the Army analogy, I, I tell the story about when I was graduating from West Point and I wanted to go to Ranger School and I could not. Um, I actually wanted to fly a helicopter, but I had an injury that, that disqualified me from being an Army aviator. And at that point, I wanted to go in the infantry and I could not, right? Those schools and th those uh, some of those branches were closed to women in, you know, the late, in the 80s and, and early 90s. And today, if if young cadet Deb Katulich, you know, wanted to go to Ranger School, she could, uh, or go infantry, she could. And that I am, again, very proud of. And, and I think, again, beyond the military, it's representative of society, right? Women have more opportunities, and, and it, it would be great if they could look back just a little bit to understand what didn't exist for them um, and what exists for them now and take advantage of that. And again, for, you know, for all of the men and women, we have the most diverse population of 17 to 24, 17 to 28 year olds demographically than we've, than we've ever had in our, you know, in our nation and, and the opportunities are endless. So that's what, that's what I want to leave them with. But there is no substitute for hard work. Um, and there is no substitute for being a lifelong learner, right? Be, be open to learning. And uh, and you're never gonna you're never gonna reach the end. And leadership is the same way, right? We've talked a tremendous amount about leadership. Leadership is a journey. 
I am I am still learning how to lead, and uh, you know I embrace that, and I'm proud of it. So that's those are I think the nuggets I would leave. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Major General Deborah Katulich. Um, and again, Major General Katulich, thank you for your service. And thank you uh, to uh, joining us today and sharing some very, very valuable advice. Thanks, Aileen. This has been a real pleasure and an honor, honestly. I, um, you know, I've heard a lot about you and your program, and I, I was thrilled that you asked. And thanks for giving me some time to, to share some of my thoughts and ideas. I'm Aileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One.